Amitav Ghosh is the internationally best-selling author of many works of fiction and non-fiction, including The Glass Palace, and the recipient of numerous prizes and awards. He divides his time among Kolkata, Goa, India, and Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Your desire to tell a sea story from the perspective of Asian eyes as opposed, as opposed to British. I've read that this was one of the motivations behind your writing this latest novel, which is A Sea of Poppies. I wouldn't say British so much, but, um, you know, in general, when we see, um, when sea stories are told, they're almost always told from a very European or North American perspective, you know, they're wonderful North American uh, sea writers. Melville, I suppose, and uh, O'Brien is British, and Uh, Forster. (laughs) You know, to me, Melville is a a really, really, really wonderful writer. Yes, so all this, the sea story is always sort of told from an um, Atlantic perspective, as you, if you like. Uh, whereas, in fact, a, a very large percentage of sailors in that period were actually um, Asian. So I wanted to try and think about, you know, how did they think of the sea? How did they think of their ships? How did they think of um, uh, sailing and so on? Uh, and of course, it's kind of impossible to know at this, uh, at this great remove. But, um, you know, that was certainly a part of my endeavor, yes. And how does it differ? I think it differs in many ways, you know. I mean, one of the ways in which it's very different is that, um, you know, if you read typically the, um, the life of Western sailors, now they were the ultimate kind of atomized individual, you know. I mean, they would, they would be on one ship and then they would go on another ship. Uh, the Laskas seem to have been quite different in that regard in that they traveled as communities. The Laskas would be like the, the labor the Laskas are the Asian sailors. It's just a okay. word for Asians. You know, technically in the 19th and 18th centuries, even the 20th century, on crew manifests, they were always described as Laskas. As opposed to each one of them going their own way, they would go as a group? They would go as a group. They traveled as groups, it seems. And maybe the groups were based upon um, kinship or something. But we don't really know. I mean, I think a lot of them were just like sort of societies of friends. It is kind of a quite different thing in some ways. Mm-hmm. And they were obviously great storytellers because the few references we see uh, about them, uh, I mean, they're always talking, <laughs> you know, they're, they're always telling stories to each other. One of the things that uh, other novelists uh, that I've spoken to at the Writers' Festival here have talked about the fiction as being a way to give new life to lost voices. Do you say that that's what you're attempting to do? Yes, I think in a way that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, an apt description. I mean, uh, these aren't really voices that are lost so much as completely silenced. We never really heard. Never heard, yes. We simply don't know, you know, what the Laskas thought. Or indeed, what the other uh, people who really fascinate me are the early Indian migrants. And there again, you know, there's such a, such a complete absence of the record, you know, we just don't know. It's a, it's a very strange thing because, you know, if you look at, say, the years of slavery, so, I mean, we actually have quite a rich collection of slave testimonies. Say, in American slavery, you know, many slaves left testimonies and autobiographies and so on. But when you look at the indenture, uh, in, especially Indian indentured workers, I don't know of any uh, records or testimonies. There's an absolute absence of them. So you really had to rely on your own research that you'd done from various, uh, the East India Company and, and various other colonial reports... Yeah, basically that's what you're stuck with. Uh, it really is. In Mauritius, 
which is where the first Indian indentured workers went. Yeah, we should mention that uh, basically that the story follows the course of a schooner that takes these workers from Calcutta to Mauritius in 1838. And so you, you give a ri- very rich description of life in Calcutta and the plight of, of these people. And out of the research, it's interesting, the title of the book refers to the opium trade and yet, as I understand it, you weren't aware of the, the dominance of the opium trade as it pertained to these people. Yes, my interest really began with uh, the indentured workers, and I wasn't really aware of the extent to which their lives were really fashioned by poppy cultivation. But what I was trying to say was that in Mauritius, they have a, very, uh, they have a really excellent national archive, and they also have a really excellent archive of you know, all records pertaining to indentured workers. There is a certain amount of stuff that you can get out of that. Like what? Well, you know, it's just uh, their belongings. Then you have uh, their first papers, their registration papers, documents like that. No narratives. Was there anything in particular that sort of sparked some thoughts or potential prose or or dialogue? Was there there anything in particular that kind of came out of that, that that hit you? Yes, many things actually, because, you know, when you're actually going through each of the individual slips, it's kind of really interesting because, um, you know, on, the, on, on one side you have the notations being made in English, it's, it, you know, they're just filling in the form really, but on the rear sometimes you find notations in Bengali, you know, so the clerk who was making the notations in Calcutta was just jotting, his, uh, uh, jotting a couple of things and uh, those sort of very incidental things sometimes uh, were quite, uh, quite interesting. They would note, for example, who had brought the person uh, to the Calcutta office, and you would sometimes see those names recurring, you know. You would also see variants of the name spelling and things like that. Uh, It's a very slender hole, but in its way, very interesting. One of the things I I enjoyed hearing about was the fact that you wanted to turn this into a trilogy because it was so much, you got so much pleasure from, from being in that time. Yes, that's absolutely true. I just so enjoyed writing it. It was uh, uh, it was really exciting. It was more than exciting. I mean, it was just deeply pleasurable. I mean, you know, and once I was in, uh, kind of a year into it, uh, the pressure on one to write concisely happens when you're writing the sort of story uh, where you go from point A to point B, you know. But that's not why anyone's going to read my book about this. No, that's not why anyone's going to read The Sea of Puppies, you know. The reason why they're going to read it is because uh, they enjoyed being in that moment and they, they enjoyed the journey. You know, and I myself enjoyed the journey so much. You know, I mean, it was, it was hard work, but it was still, um, you know, deeply pleasurable, really. That I, I, I just wanted to follow these people, their lives, their, uh, and I want to go on following them uh, for many years to come. What specifically was it that gave you the pleasure, do you think? <laughs> well, one of the things that really gave me a lot of pleasure in it so this is a book which is many very awful things happen in it. In some general sense, the the background of it is incredibly awful. I mean, you know, opium addiction, uh, uh, kind of uh, forced labor, whipping, all of this is there. But there also, there's also an enormous amount of silliness. Silliness? Yes, I really enjoyed the silliness. Silliness that came from your own imagination? Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The you jokes know, that they would tell? The or? jokes, yeah. All that stuff, really. And I really enjoyed that. You know, one of the things you do learn about life, especially when you've uh, lived with people who have hard lives often, is that 
it's not one dimensional so even in the midst of great misery and great difficulty find ways to laugh find ways of um, entertaining themselves find ways of being silly just finding you know that sort of uh, sometimes infantile but sometimes uh, sometimes joyful pleasure in life a way of getting through difficult times it's perhaps even more than that as far as say the indentured workers are concerned uh, several people who traveled with indentured workers both chinese and indian uh, european observers they always say that you know what struck them most uh, was the, uh, the that these people who were in the most appalling conditions would still sing and laugh and play games and find ways of amusing themselves i mean you see that in so many sources um, so you can see that uh, you know people found ways of being resilient yeah which is inspiring it is very inspiring and i think it's actually you know it's some sort of strange um, middle class sentimentality that uh, insp- that makes people think that you know people who have difficult lives are always gloomy because they're not at all i mean that just isn't how it is i mean it's not that the difficulty is in any in any way mitigated but still there is that so it's, it's an approach to life then if you look back on human history really 99% of the time people have had very difficult lives you know whether you think of medieval europe or you think of compared to now uh, yeah but i i bet if you did a survey i mean if it were possible to do a survey of those times and today uh, you would find that people were much more lighthearted then than now yeah i think you're right we don't have enough to do or it's too easy or we have more time to sort of contemplate the fact that we're bored I mean, maybe these people had things inflicted upon them they had to do things it kept them busy whereas today there's more leisure time and i'm just musing out loud here but do you think that does that make sense to you I would put it differently. I mean, even today, if you look at, say, other uh, happiness indexes that I mean, they do surveys of, it's always the most unexpected places that seem to be happiest. I mean, like China is often way up there, and you know, places like Denmark and so on are way down there. Yes, yeah. incredibly unhappy, and you know, despite everything being so wonderful. And I think one of the reasons for that is that actually, what people had in those days, what really sustained them, and what made things possible, is that. they had communities uh, friendship community these things were much much easier yeah society is much more fragmented today it's much more fragmented and there's such a sense of a privatized emotion and so on that uh, it's very hard for people to feel that they're sharing uh, a common lot mm-hmm. something like that and i think that's really one of the very striking differences even if you read if you read nautical memoirs of north american sailors you know and there are many wonderful memoirs of mm-hmm. that kind like you know two years before the mast and so on the lives of european sailors of any sailor in the 19th century was one of truly unimaginable hardship i mean absolutely unimaginable hardship scurvy I mean, and uh, the elements and, and just you know being crammed together and the whippings and the beatings and for years they would have to live with, uh, without sleep because it was like they had these 4 hour watches you know and without their their wives and families without anyone and with this incredible violence and then you're faced with this appalling weather and yet you know when people write of it it's not all a tale of lamentation at all i mean uh, they found pleasure in it they found because there was a sort of camaraderie there was a sort kind of a bond uh, that you know against their together they're working toward yeah. some goal 
And uh, sailors, they always said, you know, I mean, while they're at sea, they're always uh, sort of talking about, you know, was I mad to go to sea? But the moment they come back on shore, <laughs> they can't bear it for more than a day or two. That's interesting, yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, uh, who was it? It was Dr. Johnson who said uh, no man who can contrive to get himself into a jail uh, would ever go off to sea. <laughs> I'm speaking with Amitav Ghosh, who is the author of Sea of Poppies. Recently, I, I went to see a production of Beckett's Happy Days, and uh, darned if this conversation doesn't remind me of, of course, as you know, the lead actress is buried in mud up to her waist for the first act and up to her neck in the second, and yet she displays exactly this sort of good humor throughout the drudgery. You know, I must say that, uh, you know, when I go from the U.S. to India, it's one of the things that strikes me most, and you know, the moment I say this, it sounds somehow sort of politically incorrect to say, <laughs> even because, you know, poverty is very real and there's nothing, uh, uh, there's nothing easy about it and so on. And yet, you know, when you're there, there's a kind of uh, cheerfulness and a sort of optimism in people's, uh, you know, even people who lead very difficult lives, which I certainly don't see amongst even very affluent uh, people in Brooklyn, far less uh, the non-affluent. Yes. You clearly get great pleasure from the research that you do. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that you'd actually gone on board one of these schooners, and I think there was a parrot involved. Some, <laughs> yes. some captain with a parrot involved. But, and it reminded me of the fact that Turner, the great landscape artist, had actually gone on board uh, Victory to get a good sense of, of what uh, Nelson may have seen and heard and felt. It sounds to me like this is the kind of research that you that you like to do, you, almost like a method actor. Is that right? Yes, that's very well put. Uh, you know, I think amongst writers, as with painters, you have the act, uh, the abstractionists, and you have you have the figurative painters. And I, I'm definitely of the figurative school. You know, mm-hmm. I have to sketch from life. Uh, you know, uh, that's what makes it work for me. And that's also the pleasure of it, you know. For me, it's, I mean, the great pleasure of the writing life, I mean, the great reward of the writing life is just the variety of experience uh, that it affords if you want to look for it. So, in other words, you're restricted only by your imagination. Anything that sort of takes your fancy, you can then drill down deeply into. Yes. And then live it through the lives of your characters. Uh, yes, absolutely. Except that I do think you also have to sort of experience some aspect of it. And for me, um, certainly... It's not that I really expected to learn to sail, but to be on a sail ship, to see how it works. Uh, and the experience of the water and so on uh, profoundly informed this book. Specifically, uh, were there certain epiphanies or realizations that this experience of w- was new to you? So something that you, you didn't expect, but you came away with? Yes, many things. For example, one thing I, uh, I think I had not understood at all, and I would not have understood if I hadn't um, been on a ship, is that uh, the, uh, the technology of the sail ship, it's a very beautiful technology, and it's also, it was also one of the cutting-edge technologies of the 19th century. But it's the sail ship as a machine, it's a very intricate machine, but it's the only machine I know of that cannot work without language. You know, so, uh, I mean, the captain has to call out an order, which is then instantly obeyed, by five, six, ten, twenty, hundred people, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And that, so that's essential, that kind of human communication is essential. It's, I mean, uh, uh, language is absolutely essential to it, because otherwise it can't work, you know. And that, uh, that was a very interesting thing for me to, uh, to think about, because when you look at the crews of these sail ships, they were incredibly varied. Invariably, I mean, even even when it was just in the North Atlantic, there were you know there were Finns, there were a lot of Germans, a lot of Swedish uh, sailors, uh, a lot of Italians, uh, Portuguese. Wow. So on any given ship, you'd have like you know twenty nationalities. If you go and read the fortieth chapter of Moby Dick, uh, you'll see um, that uh, you know it's it's a chapter where they're all singing in different languages, and he shows you that, and there and there are Alaskas in there as well. So what did they do, though? What did they, how did they communicate? Was there <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, that's the question, really. That you know, you have, you have to have a very specialized language which everybody understands. Which was? Well, in the North Atlantic, uh, if you look at nautical vocabularies, uh, they're incredibly uh, international. I mean, even for, even within English. I mean. The fact that globalization is nothing new, it, it goes back but centuries. If you actually look at the crew manifest of any 19th century sailing, sailing ship, you know, it always lists the birthplaces of the sailors, and it's unbelievable. And this is especially so of ships in the Indian Ocean, where on any given ship you'd have a large number of, say, Indians, Chinese, Filipinos, Africans, Arabs, uh, Malays. So it was incredibly varied. And yet, uh, they managed to communicate, you know. And they actually had this language called Laskari, which I use at some length in my book. Yes, that's a good entrance to the dichotomy between your, as an author, comprehensibility versus, versus love of the words. You, you're wanting to include these, these exotic words at the expense of keeping the reader interested. Tension there? No, I don't see no, that. Huh? Because, uh, see... There's a significant glossary in the back of the book. See, what, what it is, is that the language, I mean, the only bits where I use Laskari are in relation to nautical terms. Now, if I'd used the English nautical terms, people would have understood them just as little. Mm. I, I bet to you, if you go out and take a thousand well-educated Canadians and you ask them what's a dolphin striker, not one of them would know. I bet uh, uh, if you ask them uh, what's the, uh, what are the after shrouds, none of them will know. They just don't know. I mean, who knows what a, what a flying jib is? Who knows what these things are? I mean, they might... A jib, yes, that they might recognize. But 99% of the nautical vocabulary of sail, nobody understands. So how does it matter if they don't understand it in English yeah. or don't understand it in Laskari? I mean, they wouldn't have understood it anyway. And, you know, what it does... I mean, when we read those words in, say, Melville or someone, uh, it, it exists as a kind of background noise, you know, which suggests to us the working of the ship. That's all we need to know, and that this does perfectly well. Uh, there is actually absolutely no uh, uh, loss of comprehensibility. If a real sailor wants to find out, I mean, they can look at that, uh, at the crestomathy, which is at the back of the book, and uh, figure it out, you know, because it is actually all accurate, what, I, what I've used. But, you know, 99% of readers, it would make no difference to them whatsoever. So, so why so not? So why not? Why not use the original? Yeah, yeah give them a yeah. sense of something different. Just uh, in closing, the talk of camaraderie on board ship, it seems to me that the caste system in India may have been left ashore once the Laskas were on board. Then in uh, Mauritius, where the ship was sailing to, the new society that they built was less caste-oriented 
that it might have been back at home? Is this? It's never that simple, you know. I mean, uh, for example, suppose uh, you as a Canadian went off uh, uh, sailing on a ship. And of course, you, you have that great sense of camaraderie with everyone around you and you pick your friends uh, such, as, uh, such as they are because yeah. you like them. But at the same time, someone comes along and says, well, you know, I'm from Ottawa. And you do feel a sense of connection, you know. So it's, I, I don't think that they ever just uh, melted into some sort of uh, faceless melting pot. I don't think that that happens anywhere. It doesn't happen in the US even. Uh, but what happened is that I, I don't think that's ever a barrier to camaraderie or a barrier to friendship. But isn't it a barrier in, in India? Not at all. It used to be, though. You just didn't associate with different cast members. You know, it's actually really not not like that at all. I mean, um, even in the past, I don't think it was, because people had friends from various different castes, but they wouldn't necessarily eat with them, or they wouldn't marry their their sisters or something. I mean, it it wasn't really quite that way. I mean, in the same way, let's say, for example, uh, in New York, Ukrainians have friendships with Ghanaians in the workplace or even after work or whatever, but uh, people fit friendships into different sort of areas of life. And uh, as for the caste system in Mauritius, um, yes, it certainly did change, it became much looser, but it didn't disappear. I mean, even today, uh, politics in Mauritius, caste makes a huge difference. There are caste groupings, and uh, especially the certain, uh, like, peasant castes are very strong. Your novel, The Sea of Poppies, is there a message here for the world we live in today? (laughs) Nothing quite so simple as that, no. Uh, whatever message there is, uh, is so deeply encrypted in the book that you would actually have to read it to, to get a sense of it. So I would, I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and do just that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nigel.